0: Hey, Jr, can you hear me? Can you pronounce your last name to make sure I get it right? Vellatin, it's tough. Just Vellatin. Yeah, yeah, okay. you put an A
1: in there. All Vlatin. right, because I've
0: heard, I've heard like three or four different pronunciations. Vellatin, Vellatin,
1: Yeah, Vlatin. man, fucking even old friends of mine can't say it. So I, <laughs> you know, if I would have got, if I'd get pissed at that, I'd be fucking miserable all the time.
0: Welcome to Our Social Landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. Willie Vellatin is a Reno-raised and Portland-based musician and novelist. He formed Richmond Fontaine in the mid-1990s, and they released 11 studio albums over a 20-year run before forming his current band, The Delines, in 2012. A prolific artist, Volant has also published five novels through Harper Perennial, The Motel Life, Northline, Lean On Pete, The Free, and Don't Skip Out On Me. The Motel Life and Lean On Pete have been adapted to the big screen with his characters played by the likes of Chris Christopherson, Dakota Fanning, Emile Hirsch, Steve Buscemi, and Chloe Sevigny. Volotin's writing is infused with melancholy and beauty, loneliness and hope. Hard luck characters fighting against demons, both internal and those outside their control. I wanted to find where these folks come from, what it is about the American experience that produces them, and how they manage to get up each day and tackle their circumstances, no matter how marginalized they are. From his initial recordings in the early 1990s through today, with his sixth novel and third Lines album, In the Works, Volatin has created a sonic and not-so-fictional world of art that inspires perseverance. Something that I wanted to hear more about, since we're living in a time where an increasing number of people are suffering from the policies of a fascist, would-be dictator in the White House, and a Congress in court, intent on keeping the rich rich and the poor on the margins. From his house in the woods of Oregon, we spoke a few times via Zoom as the 2020 presidential election was hanging in the balance, and he set me straight on how to pronounce his last name.
1: It's just, it's a difficult name. It's uh, Yugoslavian or former. You Yugos- could it's Croatian and okay. uh, um, and I think it was Vlahudin, oh. and uh, and then they just switched it to Blaton.
2: Yeah,
0: all right, works for me. Thank you. Let me start by asking you about some of your characters. Um, they're separate, you know, individuals, but they seem to emanate from a, a common wellspring, if you will, lower class or working class, even middle class folks. Uh, their day to day struggles off the top of my head when I was putting this together, I was thinking of Allison Johnson and North Lime, uh, the narrator. And I can't black it out. If I wake up and remember, uh, the motel, like the Lee brothers, Amber, Kevin and crystal from lost in the trees. I love that song. Um, so what circumstances, what circumstances do you think brought these people to where they are? Like, is there a common undercurrent structurally, socially, historically or something? In other words, like what is it about the American experience that produces these folks? You know, why are they on the margins?
1: Well, I, you know, part of it, I think, is just, you know, it's tainted through, through my experience. Uh, I am, a, you know, I've always w- wanted to write novels that uh, they were about people I understood or was around. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up at the, a time w- when John Steinbeck was, was king in, in, in my, both my junior, my middle school and high school. I think I read most of his major works in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was the same time I was listening to like the jam and and the clash. And I also was raised by a single mother that just was, you know, sexually harassed and get paid as much as her male counterparts and um, really struggled uh, to keep us afloat, my brother and I and her. And I think and and she was one who would unload on us every night Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about it. So we kind of knew the lay of the land, and I think a combination of those made sense to me is, is why, like, man, if I was going to write stories, I wanted to write them about people like my mom or, or like the, the people I knew more than, than, than James Bond. I, I just didn't have an interest in that. I, I really did want to be like Steinbeck in my own way when I wrote and and this is before I even really thought about it but it was just kind of started in the the fabric of it I think because because of what I just said you know yeah. clash jam uh th- those kind of working class heroes and then Steinbeck and then I also grew grew up in Reno Nevada and uh, and my mom works with a lot of um kind of drifter guys that would come in and out of where she worked she would tell me about all these kind of drifter guys and um and then, as I got older, like seventeen, eighteen, I I know you know I, I realized I had a big edge on me, man. I was a real nervous, uh, really shy, dark-minded guy,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and I think by the time I was eighteen, I was uh, I was you know drinking in like old man bars, and I really thought I would be a bum, uh, <laughs> not for the excitement of it, but I just felt like I kind of deserved it. And and Reno at the time was full of like failed men. Um, There was literally hundreds and hundreds of guys that lived in motels. In the, you know, mile radius of of Reno, there was, you know, maybe over 120 little motels that were weeklies. So kind of uh, pretty beat up, derelict guys that weren't living on the street, but it just kind of failed. And I was, without even really thinking about it, I was seriously attracted to, to them. And I kind of thought that's where I would end up. I think my whole life has been basically either trying to be like that or trying. And as I, as you get older, you're trying desperately not to be like those guys. Yeah. So I, I think that's where the world comes from. Mm-hmm. The the world I created uh, or in my books is, is, is you're right. Is it's generally the same kind of socioeconomic, same kind of beat up kind of people. But I think just because that's, that's where I come from and what I understand. And also is as, as a novelist. I, kind of again a little bit like steinbeck where you just when you pick up a book of his you just disappear into that world right. and it's a world you kind of know
0: mm-hmm. uh, what about these characters what do you think they would say about what's going on in america right now covid19 black lives well, matter the election like <laughs> are, are they political or are these these people kind of vote uh, so far on the margins they're not even politicized
1: well that's you know that's where it's a novel for me for me i mean uh Every single one of them would be, a, a, even though <laughs> they wouldn't have union jobs, they would all be like card-carrying union members, you know, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be, you know, racist. But, you, you know, and maybe I, I have my head in the sand a little bit about about it, but in my worlds, man, uh, unless the, unless I, I'm interested in them as far as racism, my main characters, I, I you know, I, I can't spend two and a half years with with a with a racist or a, or a you know a trump supporter i, I just you know life's too short mm-hmm. but in general you're right the the kind of people in my books would probably sadly be voting against themselves and voting for trump she
2: was lost. isolation is my biggest fear
1: You know, yeah, like Northline was all about weakness, you know. It was about how different people react to being weak. Where Allison Johnson, she she implodes, uh, she beats up herself, she has a difficult time standing up for herself, and she kind of drinks to, to just kind of disappear from herself. Where her boyfriend who's just, as, he's not a horrible guy, he's just scared and beat up and has not had a good, you know, upbringing obviously, and he explodes. So he blames other people for his problems and his situations he in, he's in. And so he, that's his weakness. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. That That's and, a nice, the North line is a nice segue to what I wanted to ask you next about whether that, um, you know, what you just discussed about the, these people that are on the margins, if there's an experiential gender difference and the background for that question is that you write, you know, in addition to this, the novel North Line that has a, a female protagonist you also write the lyrics and music for a band called the Delines and you have an amazing singer in that band a woman named Amy Boone and many of the songs have similar themes to Richmond Fontaine and your novels um, he told her the city was killing him, the Imperial that old haunted place etc but um, they're written from a woman's first person narrative
2: he told her the city was
0: there's like two things I wanted to ask about them. The first one, is that difficult? Is it difficult to write? I remember uh, from a woman's perspective, I remember an interview with John Crying years ago. Somebody had trashed him about writing Angel from Montgomery that's told from a first-person a female's perspective and he said I'm telling a story that's all I'm doing is telling a story but then I heard an interview with Jim Harrison right you remember Jim Harrison so I heard him in his interview on a podcast called home of the brave it's a really great podcast a guy named Scott Carrier who was used to do I think all things considered or something NPR just got an interesting backstory but he interviewed Jim Harrison towards the end of Jim Harrison's life And Jim Harrison said, quote, you have to inhabit all of your characters. I had a great deal of trouble when I wrote Dalva to fully inhabit a woman in order to speak in her voice. So how do you have you had trouble with that? Are these same experiences that you're talking about growing up with your mom, but also these men that you're talking about? Like, is there a gender difference in how we experience that?
2: Now she's staring out the window. I
1: mean, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, that, I mean, that's a big discussion right now, right? Who, who deserves uh, or has the right to tell whose story? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, I mean, it is like with, with uh, Allison Johnson say, you know, I was interested in, in how men and women handle their weakness, handle lack of self-confidence, self-hatred. Um, and I, you know, like I said, all the best uh, people in my life are women. Uh, you know, I was raised by a woman. My grandmother, my aunt, um, were always the coolest. Uh, and and so maybe that's why I, I've always had women characters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was interested. I think it's really interesting, just as a person, the the diff- how men and women react to uh, things differently, like how men and women uh, react to say self hatred. Differently uh, or or weakness, like I said. So I just kind of don't think about it. I mean, I learned a couple tricks from Jim Harrison, which is he would always make his gal, Dalva. She he she. It seemed like a dream girl of his sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then in Larry Brown wrote Faye, which mm-hmm. is a really cool book. But it's also she Faye became kind of a dream girl.
0: Okay.
1: You know, and so I just stay away from that. I I always think of uh, my women characters like my cousin. Uh, this this cousin of mine that was like a drinking buddy of mine in my 20s mm-hmm. she's just a really cool woman but I don't really think of her I just think of her as my friend and mm-hmm. so w- when I write women characters I just I just don't get crushes on them <laughs> and uh and try my best. And, uh, and, and then, you know, again, I'm surrounded by women. My main editor in the US is a woman, my agents, a woman, uh, my wife's a woman, uh, and they'll tell me if I'm off base and then writing for the Lions, Amy will definitely tell me if I'm off. Usually I just like John Prine, just trying to tell a story. Uh, and you know, and, and, and you hope you do it. Do it right and if you don't uh you hope to god somebody somebody tells you that you're off with uh, everyone um kind of making you stay in your lanes is a is a at least in the literary world it seems like there's real kind of heat on who gets to tell what stories and you should you only tell the story of your race your sex your socioeconomic mm-hmm, um yeah. and i think once you start doing that it just it, it like once you start forcing yourself to stay in your own lanes Uh, It can can be stifling, but I understand why people get upset by it. But I also think, you know, it's like when Bonnie Raitt sings Angel from Montgomery, no one no one cares that it was written uh, by a man because it just feels so good. And she does it so well. She She wrote it in her own way, uh, you know, because of the way she sings it. It just feels like it came out of her soul. Yep. So it, it's a good song, and so uh, I think at the end of the day, if the per, if if the song's good or the novel's good, uh, then you should forget who wrote it. I've always been interested in in how a guy gets up and goes to a shitty job every day yep. with a lot of burdens on him and uh, and doesn't quit. I've always been interested in that, and I'm interested in in how how people uh, you kind of grind out difficult lives both men and women and and they do it differently um mm-hmm. so yeah I, i'm interested in that stuff mm-hmm. and and you just hope you, you do it well enough that they forget that a man wrote it and with the Deline, same thing you know when when amy sings she's such a great singer and so cool uh that when she sings a song i hope the listener forgets that thinks she wrote it and or that it's, it was written by a woman or written by whoever you think it needs to be written by so you would believe it. I, I hope you just kind of forget all that stuff and just kind of disappear into the song, which is which is what you, you want to do uh, when you're listening to music anyway. Um, she was in a band called The Damn Nations um, mm-hmm. mid-90s, I think, for eight years or so. Kind of a big-time band out of Austin, yeah. Texas with her yeah. sister. A louder. And a really cool band, and, and we did a tour or two with her and her sister and her sister sang on a couple of Richmond Fontaine songs. And then she was, you know, off that record, High Country, uh, her sister helped us out with it. And then she was pregnant when we were supposed to tour it. And so Amy came along and did the, was nice enough to do the tour with us. And, uh, and I started hearing her, you know, warm up, singing these kind of ballads. I, you know, I was getting older, too, and I'd never been that comfortable being a front guy. Mm-hmm. and i really didn't want to be the front guy anymore and i heard her sing and i said jesus i would love to be in a band with a singer like that and just write songs that fit that world and um and so i you know i went home and secretly started writing them and uh, uh you know after i had a dozen or so i sent them to her and she was nice enough to give it a shot and then then we just we started making records
0: yeah that was it
1: and i you know to be honest i just love her voice and the, the i love ballads and mm-hmm. i got <laughs> i got tired of writing rock tunes just because <laughs> i wasn't that interested in it uh yeah. Yeah. even yeah. as a kid even when i was like 14 15 i was writing tons of ballads uh-huh. it's just kind of where my head's at and um sure so you know as you get older you start realizing you know fuck man i only got so much time left and uh uh, if I want to do something, I better do it, and and, yep. and so that the lines was, you know, I always wanted to be in the back, and I always wanted to write tunes uh, that were ballads and not have to play really, <laughs> really <laughs> fast.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of chill and listen. Even like though I like playing fast, I just yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah you, and no one bothers you.
0: No, you just kind of stay
2: off to every the side. A little bit to get free. Now you say Lily sick. Irwin's fading fast. Carol's hot, everything empty the savings account. But still, the market is defaulting. That I owe you this.
0: Next question um, or a quote, and just tell me your thoughts on this. So there's a late communication scholar named George Gerbner, and he said the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior. And I I assume that goes back to the paintings on the cave walls, you know, making marks as that poet, uh, Padraig Otama said. So the telling of stories has always been important, I think. And you tell stories as a musical artist and a literary artist. So what do you think, you know, what do your stories Tell about our current world, and you know if if that's true. How do they shape human behavior? Like, what do your stories tell us?
1: Jesus, I think you're right. I mean, uh, stories do a ton of different things. They could there's the idea of escapism. They just can take you out of where you're at and and give you a break from yourself and your world for a couple hours. There, those are really important. Then there's the stories that. That make you feel less alone like you hear some broken down ballad uh, about somebody's heartbreak or depression uh or you read a novel where somebody's going through a really hard time but they they survive or they don't survive but but they just make you feel less alone okay. i think those are, are really important stories and then there's the stories that you know inspire you or uh give you strength uh i think, for me you know i i always wanted to read novels about people like myself that weren't doing that great but didn't give up yeah. and so i i i think a lot of my stories i just wanted to live in a world uh, or create a world where where like for instance my first novel the motel life is about two kind of alcoholic brothers in their 20s who ended up living in the motels in Reno my hope with that story would be that you'd find comfort in the, in the love of these two brothers, even though they're really struggling and they don't, they're not normal uh, average citizens. They re, they really struggle and I call it sliding. they just kind of slide around and hope they don't get hit by life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but they're not really doing much for themselves. I wrote that as, as a comfort for myself to make me feel less alone. Uh, and so I hope that, you know, maybe somebody that was, feeling beat up and lonely would read that and they'd get comfort from the fact that these two guys were going through similar things as they would be uh, either literally or just emotionally. And um, but that there was love between the brothers and it was in, in its own way, kind of romantic and hopeful, even though it's a very dark story. Right. So I've always kind of written like that to give people comfort, um, even though the stories are, are hard hard read sometimes, but I, you know, if you read North line, say then Alison Johnson for as weak and beat up as she is, she doesn't quit. And, um, and, and maybe that'd give somebody comfort. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah,
0: that's great. I I was going to ask you this question in a couple minutes, but since it's being talked about right now, let me ask you directly about it because there is uh, a despondency in some of your songs and stories, but there's always that hope um, the motel life, you know, my best friend, Penny Devine, she's a psychology professor here and she, she's a voracious reader. We've, you know, read your books, talk about them all the time. And a lot of people we talk about are sad in the motel life, but I, I didn't find it sad. Like, like I found it kind of hopeful, you know, like the ending particularly like, all right, this is, you know, the brother won't give the story away for people who haven't read it, but like the idea of it is sad, but yet I found a lot of hope. Uh, and so that shows up a lot in your your stories, your characters. So where does that come from? Like, is that, is that real or is that just hopeful? You hope that, that it's going to work out or, you know, where does that? End um, from? Well, I mean, I think
1: there's a couple of things. I, I think a lot of people think my stuff's grim because of the, the economic situation these guys are in. Mm-hmm. But I think the emotional part of it's universal working class fiction gets, it's, it gets a rough rap just because of the way they're dressed and, and the kind of cars they drive and I, I think if you strip that away everybody's kind of playing with the same emotional baggage uh, It's just it just looks different. If you dressed it up and made the, the brothers middle class and it would be a different novel even though the, it could be the same emotional problems they're going through right. But, you know, I've always been a fan. I guess, I i mean, I'm not really sure where that comes from. Because I am a dark-minded guy. But but, but maybe it's as simple as, that. you know, I just grew up with a mom that, you know, was, a, you know, an agoraphobic and a, uh, really struggled uh, to go to work every day. And then she gets to work and she gets fucked with by men all day. Mm-hmm. And then she comes home has to take care of two kids and... You know by herself and all that stuff that people do every day and uh she didn't quit and so i and i think i was always kind of raised that you just got to show up if you just show up and try your hardest even if you're half drunk and you look like shit, you just got to show up and try (laughs) uh and i think that was just kind of in the in my belief system i guess that aspect of it. So yeah, yeah. And I juggle with that just on a personal level, you know, I'm on that fucking razor. It seems like now half of me wants to, you know, live inside an old man bar. And then half of me never wants to step foot in there. Uh, Wow. And I've been battling that since I was like 16, 17 to varying degrees of success on either, on either side. The only fun time growing old in the bar is when you're 20 and you're hanging out with like a 40-year-old guy who just got out of prison and has really fucking crazy stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Then you think he's cool, but when you're 40 sitting next to that guy who's 40, you're just like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Uh, this guy has done nothing but lived in a bar his whole life. So I think you know there was definitely a romantic side to 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 me liking that that side of life, and also a relief because I thought I uh, you know I grew up thinking I was going to be a bum, and I was a bum. You know uh, I think got older and you start you're like well I might as well hang out with these guys because I'm going to end up living like them anyway, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of fucked up battle is is why I've been writing the same writing that kind of stuff in varying degrees. I mean, I don't write about as much as I used to um, ever since.
0: Yeah, but always the always has some always has some hope, uh, it seems, or at least just you know it, the darkness at some point finds <laughs> finds some kind of light.
1: Well, I think you got I mean I think I'm a firm believer if you can just gut it out. and like I said earlier, if you can just show up in whatever sh- shape you're in, and try your best just to make a little different move than you made the last time. Yeah. And, you know, maybe not do the make the same mistakes you made before. Shit, your life will change mm-hmm. and it will get better. But you've got to make those little adjustments. Even if that's all you can do is just like, you know, not, not answer phone when that certain friend calls or, uh, or whatever it is. But I think people get, can get so powerless, feel so powerless and so despondent that they 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 just keep making the same mistakes and so i'm always interested in that personally and just as as a society i'm really interested in that and and i'm always amazed uh every day that that i get up and you see guys working shitty jobs all day and that they haven't like <laughs> given up or killed themselves to quit uh mm-hmm. i'm amazed because i man i struggled i struggled with all that stuff uh, when i was working like a weight around your feet that ain't heavy enough Send you down, but I remember in the back of a bar called the Blue Sea, my wife sitting on my lap, whispering, "You."
0: me of uh, the richmond fontaine song night in the city um you know he yeah doesn't sure. come I mean, home he yeah. goes to the titty bar he pukes stays out all night but goes to work <laughs> but still makes it to shift on time
1: yeah that's that's i mean i, I can't tell you that all the songs i've written that i've had more like middle-aged guys come up to me and go jesus man that's me <laughs> you know like it might be a little more graphic but yeah yeah it's that idea uh I like that idea where the guy just not, he's not a rebel. He's just, he just is running out of reasons to get up and try. And he's at that stage in his marriage or relationship where, where he's not happy, she's not happy, but they don't really know what to do about it. Right. And he's just grinding out years in a job. And so one night he goes, well, shit, I'll just go out with this weird coworker, coworker, is a is into strip bars and which in portland i mean they're they're closing them down now but you know when this when that song took place was, you know there's like one on every other block and um you know when the guy just stays out all night and has kind of like a midlife one night rebellion where he just gets drunk and walks around all night and passes out but you're right still he gets up and goes to work and and really he just he just wants uh love from his wife and a reason to get up every morning. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a dark tune. Uh, um, but yeah, like I said, man, that's the one that, that <laughs> people like have most definitely popular song to
0: among certain demographics. Yeah. Majors. For,
1: for a certain segment of, <laughs> uh, of disgruntled, hopeless, middle-aged alkyes. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, okay. S- quick, uh, this is kind of related to the George Gerbner quote, but Joni Mitchell, um, She said that when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. So I'm just kind of interested in people that are, you know, in the arts broadly defined, do you know, do you agree with that statement? Like what, you know, what role do you think art plays in particularly in times like this where I would say are, you know, there are cultural divisions and things like that in the country are so strong.
1: I mean, I don't know the role of, of, of art. I mean, obviously Every, well, I guess like the drive-by truckers, since we, we both know uh, Patterson Hood, uh, what it means, yeah, which is, right. I think, a really successful, really amazing, very political song. Agreed. Um Those are really hard to write and really hard to, to make meaningful in a way that you could get anyone to listen to it and, and maybe open their eyes a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've always felt that to open anybody's eyes, you have to just tell a story that you really believe in. Okay. Um so so for Leon Pete's save my novel, I was really interested in low level horse racing and I didn't want to stand on a soapbox and say, you know, hey, low level horse racing or horse racing in general maybe is really a rough world. All I could do is tell a, a story about a kid who knows nothing about horse racing that gets kinda of sucked into it. Yeah. So i I feel like like I writing political it's really important because if, uh, in the regards of like it gets you up in the morning every day and, and you feel like you're working on something that means something to you. And then again, maybe it comes back to that old school listening to the clash and the jam as a kid and while reading <laughs> John Steinbeck, maybe that's all, but I think it's really a difficult thing to do unless you put your own blood in it and your own stories and your own, you know, just guts in it. Uh, Very seldom do you hear like straight up political songs that age well or, or, or novels, unless they really have like personal, emotional blood in it. But some do like, like what it means, I think elevates, elevates that in, you know, it's a classic song that is, that is very political, but also I think, like one of those great life songs, like they, one of the best songs he's ever written. And I think will hold up through, through time. Yeah. Patterson heads, one of the best, uh, uh, bullshitters, uh, I can see that around. He's just fucking good, man. Yeah. I've been a huge fan and, uh, he's a total inspiring brave. He's a brave dude. Yep. Too.
2: Yeah. I,
0: I think so too. I, when I talked to him about that, um, yeah. I think they've always been political, but once it's race, to some white dude, maybe yeah. it's like, oh, now they're getting political. <laughs> it's like, no, man, they've always been political. Yeah, right?
1: maybe you're maybe you're right. When it's like when it's economic, part. it's okay. But yeah. but yeah, don't I mean, that's the sad thing you're starting to to really see is that the the underlying kind of white supremacy vibe that's that's always been an undercurrent is is just getting been empowered
0: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and um and and you just see it more. You do. Uh, yeah. and man, it's it's it takes the fucking knocks the wind out of you. Sure, um, well, but, the but yeah, maybe the president maybe.
0: doesn't help with that. That's for sure. I mean, he's kind of opened his. No, doors. no,
1: man. I mean, it's really uh, it's empowering. It. I yeah. mean, the only thing he's done is kind of like, like at least he he's pulled the the, the blanket off so you can see the the right. w- the fucking gaping wound. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no
0: I mean, I guess that's, yeah.
2: Don't skip out without taking me. Don't skip
1: out.
0: Don't skip out on me. We um, speaking of don't skip out on me. Do you think that social class has played a larger uh, role in your work or are they intertwined? And I'm thinking of Horace Hopper the, from Don't Skip Out On Me. You know, he's mixed race and he's struggling with his identity, but he's also financially poor. Like, do those things tie in together or do you separate them out?
1: I mean, with that story, I was more, I mean, I guess I was thinking as far as, as race, I was thinking of who, how do you define who a person is and what a person is? And so, and and I thought about the that in terms of the American dream, and then in terms of loneliness. I guess one of the big themes in "Don't Skip Out on Me" is is loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here's this kid that uh, raised uh, kind of on his own without the the love, uh, the basic love he needed. He, his father was out of the picture. His mother uh, left him with a, a racist grandmother. Um, the boy's, uh, half Paiute and half or more than half white say. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was raised by a white mother who, uh, gets remarried when he's eight and the new dad doesn't really like him and they have a new baby. And so they ship him to a small town in Nevada to live with a racist grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so the boy kind of grows up with no ethnic identity. I mean, he's raised fully around white culture but around a grandmother that loves him, but also puts him down because she thinks he's part Native American, which he is, mm-hmm. but he also has no Native American identity. He's got no identity with that culture whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So my question was like, well, who, who is he? Well, you know, who's he spo- who's this kid supposed to be? His answer is, I want to be something great. That's not me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I want to become something that's not me. Cause, cause I've been raised to kind of dislike myself. And so he picks the thing that he uh, thinks is the coolest, which is uh, Mexican boxers because he thinks they're the toughest and he kind of looks Mexican and he thinks
2: yeah.
1: I'm going to move to a big city and become a famous, well-respected guy and a professional boxer. And I'm going to, and I'm going to come back as savior and to save the old couple that he ends up living with this old ranch couple. And he's going to come back and a hero and save them. Um, he's a kid, he's just a, he's a, ki- a, a really mixed up kid, uh, that has no solid foundation underneath him. And so he's kind of just left to the wind. And I, and so I was interested in race and as far as that, like, well, so who is this kid supposed to be? And why, why do people pick on him or peg him into certain that he's a certain thing? Why is his grandmother pick on him for being a native American when he doesn't even get any of the benefits? of being Native American. It's a tough situation. I think a lot of people in America are like that.
0: Like, what are the benefits that you're referencing? What kind of things are you thinking about?
1: Well, I I was thinking in particular, like, community, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a sense of place, in a sense of, like, hey, this is who I am. This is the culture I'm part of. And it's a beautiful culture, and I should be proud of it. And I have all these people around me that that are the same, Mm-hmm. Um, and Horace has nothing, none of that. I mean, he's, uh, he's got no ethnic identity. He's got no culture to lean on. Uh, he's got none of the, the things you get from having a strong understanding of where you came from. And I think that's heartbreaking. And, and on top of that, uh, he knows nothing or very little about, uh, his native roots, Yet he gets put down, you know, in in a really loving, dark, kind of fucked up way by his grandmother. It's really, it's just like he's got a set of clothes on that she doesn't like that he can't get off. But those clothes are really fucking cool. But no one tells him that.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, And and that deep seated uh, dislike of himself Mm -hmm. uh, is there. And I mean, those are hard scars to uh, eradicate those early childhood trauma uh, and the isolation and knowing that the people closest to them uh, either abandoned them or or loved them, kind of.
2: Kind of. Yeah,
1: that's a hard way to be loved is kind (laughs) of like, you know, under uh, where where they love you, but, uh, you know, it's not really concrete or hey if you fuck up there they might not love you anymore or you know remember because you're you just because you maybe look the way you do they're not gonna love you all the time and and they're gonna say some mean things to you but they do love you you know that kind of thing yeah that's a mind fuck and I think that's one of the reasons Horace is so kind of scarred up and then where it becomes personal is is uh you know i Growing up, I never, I always want, wanted to figure out a way so that I, could, uh, that I wouldn't be me. Mm-hmm. And then how can you escape yourself? And I, you know, yeah. and, and I think that's what the, what Horace Hopper is, is is trying to do. He's, you know, he was my, by far my favorite guy that I've written about and um, that I just love being around because he was so cool and he's so tough and, <laughs> uh, but he's so fragile too. And, and, you know, and again, he's like, he's lost. He wanted to be a heavy metal guy. Before that, you know, he he's ashamed that he likes, you know, Slayer, and he he sells his Slayer records and then buys them back, and
0: right. uh, he's just
1: that. he's just a lost kid.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's a great example of how race is really socially constructed. You know, like who who does get to determine what these categories are, and you know what all, even the terms we use are, you know, they're made up. You know, the terms we used for racial groups a hundred years ago we chuckle at now and maybe a hundred years from now they'll be chuckling at the terms we're using now. You know, so it really is kind of a of a mixed up h- endeavor. And then often it's people that are that have some power in society are usually the ones that get to define what is, you know, what what race is and what these categories are. So um there's definitely a lot of overlap, but um but I thought about that when I when I was reading that book because um to me, that was a, that was an, maybe more so than you intended it, but an intriguing part as a sociologist who studies race was him not even really knowing what it means, you know, to be Native American or what he does know about it. it he looks down on because of his grandmother. Uh, do you have time for one more? Sure. dollar question uh if you could choose one thing uh to make you know kind of positive social change or progressive social change however you define it like a number one thing the motel life the brothers the lee brothers how do we keep the lee brothers from living in motels and having to live in their car
1: i mean jeez you go there's a list of uh, of, <laughs> uh, of stuff i mean i i i think the breakdown of uh, not just unions but i think the breakdowns of, of of basically that kind of union-style jobs, which was not, you know, there's many reasons that happened is, and continues to happen. But I think the, like the belittlement and uh, the powerlessness of, of workers in that regard, is horrific. And and uh, you know that you can get your 30 hours at Walmart or Fred Meyer or Kroger or whatever, but it barely you barely get enough to squeak by. I mean, I would imagine that. To me, that would be one of the first things uh, that, that breaks my heart and that people aren't more outraged. Uh, I know it's a big, big, these are big questions. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but <laughs> but that's I mean, that's a huge one. I think people just uh, I've worked in too many jobs, uh, not making very much money and having making barely enough at one job and having to get another job. And that's hard to do and remain. Uh, like a good parent and a good citizen, and and care about uh, your society you're in, and then obviously healthcare is the, is the other one. It's easy, obviously, if you're rich, but if you're like a working class guy or work for yourself, it's it's you know it's like a, you, it's like paying a second mortgage. I mean that's brutal, and that's where the terms where the, where the the right uses socialism is is a, a dagger, and 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 it's not. I mean we're a socialist society in so many regards and uh yep. i wish i wish they could clarify that and uh you know and and i guess also uh i mean there is just an even in my own family there's just immense hatred of one another by really basic kind of ill-informed political uh lines in the sand and and they're all kind of manufactured in uh in so many ways and so but you know those are all uh, these are all big things that i'm not smart enough to uh articulate in a way that would make sense to most people
0: the um, concern about manufacturing jobs and the industry and and all i think i think that's one of the biggest changes that the last 70 years of our country that is that just kind of goes i just we just don't talk about it much but the shutting down of those old factories, you know, that often provided good jobs and people had retirement and all these kind of things, and then the jobs started going to Mexico and then to China, where labor was cheaper.
1: Yeah, and that's that's heartbreaking. And then and then just like, a, I mean, I I worked a union job, and it, I can see why people give unions a hard time. But the the destruction of the union is by by I can see the destruction of unions by rich people makes sense. If you yeah. own a company, you wouldn't want union. But when working class people like my mom's boyfriend growing up, he hated unions. He's a working class guy. Why would you hate the things that gives you a 40 hour work <laughs> week and OSHA and yeah. workers comp and, yeah. and vacation time and, and fucking healthcare, yeah. all these things that unions fought for and, and working class people are fighting against them and, uh, that, that had always, that's always been something that's baffled me. If you have a good job, uh, that means maybe, maybe your partner doesn't have to have another full-time job, or maybe that means you don't have to have two jobs. And then, so then when your kids come home, you can get on their ass about doing their homework and doing all the shit that's going to make them decent people yeah. instead of just working all the time. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's an interesting problem because, uh, you know, now that the same people that are, have kind of destroyed unions and destroyed that idea of, of that kind of employment are, uh, own the working class. I mean, the Republicans kind of own at least white working class. And, and it's never made sense to me. And uh, it baffles me to not to no fucking end. Uh, but they, they've been brilliant at that. And uh, so you, you go to any small town in Oregon, and you find any working class guy. And I bet eighty percent of them would vote for Trump yeah and then none of that makes sense to me but I mean I can track it but uh, but it's still heartbreaking All right.
0: after our initial conversation Willie emailed me asking if we could talk again he said that last big-ass question had a lot of parts to it and he had come up with one or two more issues or possible solutions or just things that were on his mind after sitting on it for a few days so I went back to the green room refilled my growler came home and gave no, him a call.
1: I mean, I guess the thing that I've been thinking about, I remember it was like maybe almost 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, I was visiting my mom and her boyfriend. And the boyfriend, who's a lifelong kind of Republican and, and, and a kind of a first-generation Rush Limbaugh guy, Like you know, was one of those guys that started listening to him, I think the second he went into Reno anyway so I think Rush just started getting kind of national and uh, he was a sh- serious fan. I mean, we couldn't, we wouldn't go to anywhere without it, even camping or whatever. Uh, if, if it was on a weekday and he was on, man, it, he'd find a place in camp to where we could hear it. And we might be, you know, fucking 50 miles from, from nowhere. And uh, we did, but we'd have to listen to that. And I remember him saying, one night you know that fucking socialist rag the new york times they don't know anything if you want to know the truth you got to listen to rush rush knows and i said do him i said look man rush uh, is a, he editorializes he's one opinion he's just telling you he's a guy an entertainer who's telling you you know what he thinks the new york times has that yeah they have editorials but they 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 report the facts and he just fucking shook his head, and I love the guy, I mean, he's a cool guy, and he was nice to me, but he shook his head, and they, him and my mom just fucking, because they think I'm a, uh, you know, a lefty, because I write books, and, 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 and <laughs> play music, and, and play music, and we're both of which, you know, fucking, hey, they, they were not fans of, so I remember it got really ugly, that conversation, and it got real they got really mad at me really fast when I didn't I always kind of grew up a little bit like Horace Hopper where I was always like, man, I don't know if I say something here, maybe they'll fucking kick my ass out. So I've always kept it pretty tight as far as what I say. I didn't, you know, and they'd never asked me where I was politically or anything, but they just got so mad at me for, for not agreeing with them Mm -hmm. that, um, it got really kind of dicey. And I started thinking, uh, thinking about that, 20 years ago or whatever and now to see how that has played out nationally like that idea is kind of kind of taking us over where we like the boyfriend won't listen to the fact to, to just the basic facts and he didn't get it and i think what is the scariest thing to me is the news is kind of being made to fit an audience now and the mm-hmm. idea of facts get lost in it so there there is not a common fact that we can all agree on because people only agree on the things that they think are facts that fit with what they're doing and everybody's got different outlets christians have their own news like the the real bible thumpers man they got their whole, whole own network of news where they get their news And the right gets their news and the left gets their news. And then the lefty lefts and the righty rights. (laughs) Uh, It it goes on and on. And I think to me, that's probably the scariest thing uh, about the future is is like that argument I had over and over with my folks before. You know, I just kind of quit going home where there's so much anger and so much argument and, and, and the facts, if, if they can't even agree on the facts, because the facts don't even really, are they really facts? Right. And, uh, you know, and where does that land? And, and without facts and people acknowledging facts, I mean, I mean, it's going to just, it seems like it's just going to steamroll even in weirder and unprecedented sort of ways. If you could figure out a way to just, have people agree that hey, this is a you know the, the, that guy just ran his car into the Seven Eleven, right? You know that's a fact. He, we just saw it. Like if we could just agree on the shit that's in front of us, uh, then maybe there's hope.
0: You sure the Seven Eleven didn't just move to get in his way?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or you know the 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 guy behind the counter when he was uh, getting his Slurpee uh, flipped him off in some <laughs> weird way, and he deserved it. You know? <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like, I think I told you, I had a neighbor fixing my barn and he comes over at nine in the morning and he's got a really nice place. And, uh, he came over and said, uh, you know, those goddamn Muslims, they're going to, yeah. you know, the goddamn Muslims mm-hmm. and, uh, they're going to take a, take us over if we don't watch out. And it's nine in the morning, you know, and <laughs> there's like 0.5 Muslims in, uh, 0.5% Muslims in That's Oregon. Right. You know, and you're like, motherfucker, man, that's scary. Uh, listening, you know, I remember driving on tour, doing something, and I was driving that like seven in the morning shift, and I turned on the a, a preacher, you know, like some fucking religious channel, and the guy, and sometimes those guys are brilliant. And the guy was like, you know, when, when, when you quit listening, and you, you don't give a guy respect, and try to really honestly figure out where he's coming from then we're lost
2: huh. and
1: uh Jesus man if that's the case we are seriously lost
0: yeah that reminds me too of, uh it's one of my the, the song The Boyfriends it's one of my favorite Richmond Fontaine songs going through all the list of not all oh, sure. the boyfriends yeah, yeah I mean it, to be
2: it, honest I was going
1: to the Yukon Lounge. Started hanging out with this girl there. Said her and her husband had busted up. She said she wasn't used to drinking. But I could tell she was. When we drove... No, man, that's one of the only, like, straight... I've written, like, out of... You know, when I start writing tunes, kind of because of the way I, I was raised or whatever, uh, I ne- I always wrote, Fiction. I always made up stories because I didn't. I didn't want to get yelled at, or I didn't want to fuck up anybody's life by some song I wrote. Especially like a, like my, say my mom or whatever. Like I mean, she did bust her ass for me, and uh, so I didn't. I never wrote about her. And then she passed away, and and the, the only song I ever wrote about her is the boyfriends, because that's straight up fucking the truth that that's one of the only like straight up true songs i've ever i I, I mean it's more emotionally true i think all my songs are or at least i try to be the best i can be and the most uh, emotionally truthful but as far as just like straight up facts i guess i guess the boyfriends would be be the the song that is the most you know also the fastest song i ever wrote i I wrote you know as a song i probably have been dying to write for my whole life and uh right, and it came right. out and you know you gave yourself permission, finally it's the kind of way i work is some of it's like factual or or it means something a lot to me that i know i could sing like i could sing that song every night and not feel even if people didn't like me or like i'm not a very good singer and i know that and uh but <laughs> and if guys threw shit at me at least if i was playing that song i would feel good about myself because if it feels it feels good to sing that one. So growing up because I was so bad uh, and playing, you know, to nobody for years uh, and then playing in really shitty places in Reno for years, I always just stuck to songs that, you know, that you're like, oh man, you can, you can pound the shit out of me for how bad I am. But, but, but I, be- I believe in this song, mm-hmm. you know, that idea. Definitely. So I've always kind of written from that, that idea.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Willie Vallotton on our social landscape. I thank him for giving me some time over the course of a week and for being so easy to interact with. This blog's had the unintended consequence of allowing me to talk to some total strangers and meet people I never really thought about meeting, and it was a joy to talk to him. We talked a lot about songs and books, some of which made the final product here, while others didn't, mainly due to time constraints. But I've listed them on my site if you have an interest in listening to or reading any of them. If you want to support the cause, feel free to click the yellow donate button on the website. And I thank those of you who've made contributions thus far. I'm J.R. Woodward. Thanks for listening.